Hebrews chapter 11. You'll recall that back in the spring, we started a series out of Hebrews 11 entitled, The Benefits of Believing God. And I did not know how long we'd be in this chapter, but I knew that there were many aspects of faith that God wanted me to address, but to deal with them in a different way. But for us to see things that maybe we had never seen in the lives of some of these characters, and I hope and pray that this morning as we teach on fighting the good fight of faith, Maybe we'll see a few more things that we don't often think of. Beginning with verse 32, what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and David and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Now, fathers, we take the time to minister this word. I pray you give us all ears to hear. There's a lot to share. But God, help us to share those things you want them to hear. I pray, Lord, that our faith would continue to grow as we hear your word every day. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to his son in the faith by the name of Timothy. One of the things he said to him is that they should hold faith or embrace faith. Your confidence in God is something you could relinquish at any time, but it's your responsibility to maintain that. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. You have to go out of your way to ensure that what you believe about God is something that is centered squarely in your heart. Now, we know from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that he told Timothy to remember the faith that was in his grandmother and in his mother. For you that had Christian grandparents or parents, you had an advantage that a lot of people don't have. Because you were raised by people that had a relationship with God. You know what it is to have memories of people praying for you, with you. You have memories of people reading Sunday school literature, down on their knees seeking the face of God. You may have memories of hearing family members' names that were called in prayer. So if you've had a, a heritage of faith, you have advantages. There are a lot of us that did not come from Christian homes, were not raised in a, in a church, but yet it is possible for us who did not come up in a Christian home to also benefit from the advantages of salvation. I have seen people that were raised in church, been in Christ supposedly all of their life, and after 25 years they still don't have that much of God. But I've also seen people that come in off the streets having never known anything about God, and within three years they have more of God than the one who's been raised in church ever will have. The passion, the enthusiasm, the excitement isn't there sometimes for the one who was raised with the advantages. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 7, he said, I fought a good fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished my course. I hope all of us can say that one day. When you come to the end of your race, when you come to the end of your life, will you be able to say that the faith you had at the beginning of your walk with God, you still have it? Yet plenty of people don't have it. And it's a heartbreaking thing to stand at a graveside ceremony and have memories of sitting in church with someone, memories of someone that once loved God, but you know the last 
year or ten years of their life, they didn't care anything about God. Every one of us in here has a course. We have a race that we have to run. And in the middle of that race, there are all of these distractions and things that come to us that are designed to cause you to walk away from the faith, to leave your faith in God. But you can hear what Paul said to Timothy, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith. Haven't let it go. I've held on to it. Now, Hebrews is a letter I take to also be written by Paul. And at the end of chapter 13, he even talks about his brother Timothy being set at liberty, and hopefully they'll all be able to come and visit the people that they're writing to. Hebrews 11, of course, contains some extraordinary stories of what can be accomplished by faith. And you've got some great miracles in this chapter. When you think about Noah building an ark, how amazing that is. Yeah. Noah very well could be the first zookeeper in the Bible. That man had a lot of animals around him. Can you imagine being trapped or locked into a ship with nothing but a bunch of animals, but yet that man's ark saved his family and all of those different species. Let's not forget that Abraham stepped out in faith without any kind of resource or tools that we have at our disposal if we're trying to travel. He didn't have the kind of compasses we have, certainly didn't have any kind of satellites to give him any kind of direction, didn't have a Bible in his pocket, but yet he had a voice from God that said go, and with faith in his heart he stepped out. Exceptional miracles. The hand of God against the Egyptians. And the scripture says that signs and wonders were wrought in that area. The kind of plagues that broke out the earth had never seen before. And then when they got to the Red Sea, there's no record anywhere in the Bible of any large body of water ever parting like it did for Moses when he stretched his rod out over that sea. That's an exceptional miracle. And let's not forget when Joshua and them marched around the walls of Jericho, the walls fell flat. No record at all of that ever happening in any other city up until that point. Exceptional miracles created by people that simply trusted God. That's all it was. They trusted God. Now, when you look at Hebrews 11, if you're not careful, you'll put big halos on the heads, over the heads of these people, and you'll forget that this chapter is full of stories of ordinary people. And the, the, the first half of the chapter takes us from Abel to the time of Joshua. Abel was a shepherd. His brother hated him. And as I already told you about Noah, this man built an ark and had no idea what kind of flood of judgment was coming in his direction. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all three of them struggled to conceive. Each of them battled for more than 20 years for their spouse to have a child. Ordinary people. They had livestock. They farmed. Joseph ended up being an immigrant in Egypt, yet was promoted, and God blessed him, and God used him to save his own family as well as the people of Egypt, and God favored him and blessed the house of Pharaoh because of Joseph's relationship with God. Moses was an ordinary man. As my wife told me here recently, he was the meekest man in the Bible that couldn't get into the promised land. Think of that. The meekest man in the earth couldn't get into the promised land. Ordinary people. But yet when you continue reading Hebrews 11, the second half of it, starting with verse 32, brings us from the time of the judges right on down into chapter 12, the first two verses where Jesus is the finisher of our faith. And with all of the different characteristics of these figures in Hebrews 11, all of the better traits and characteristics are all united in Christ. One perfect man. David had been called a man after God's own heart. Abraham was called a friend of God. Moses was called the meekest man in the earth. But yet all of these characteristics found a home in Jesus, and he was a man that was perfect, and he had never failed God at all. The author, 
and the finisher of our faith. But when you look at verse 32, it's interesting to me what all we have here because we've, we've looked at the, the theme of the mighty acts of God and the mighty acts of faith. But notice in verse 32, if we follow it in order in the book of Judges, we'll start with Barak. Barak lived during the time of Deborah the prophetess. She sat on a hill up under a palm tree and she prophesied and judged and provided wisdom to the elders of Israel and the families that came to her, this lady. And one day the word of God came to her and she called Barak and said, Hath not God commanded you to call together a couple of the tribes and lead them out into battle? He said, I'll go, but only if you go. There was a man that didn't want to go to war without a woman. She said, I'll go, but you need to know that God's now going to sell or deliver the children of Israel by the hands of a woman because you have made this choice. And that's exactly what happened. Barak went out to battle, fought, and they won. And you remember the Canaanite king went and was enticed into the tent of Jael, and Jael uh, gave him some milk, and he kind of went to sleep because he was tired of running, and he was running for his life. And while he was laying in the tent, she took a hammer, and she took a nail, and she put it right in his temple, and he died. He died. And God delivered Israel through the hands of a woman. Well, Barak and Deborah sang a song afterwards, but the wording of the song could have been a lot different had he not been so fearful about going to battle. Think about Gideon. Here was a man that was threshing wheat behind the wine press, afraid of the neighboring countries. They were his enemies. And an angel came to an oak tree and spoke to Gideon and said, You mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. And Gideon had three questions. These may be the questions you've asked before. The first question he asked was, Where is God? We've heard all of this stuff about God. We've heard about these miracles. Number two, why has all of this happened to us? If there is a God, why has he let so much trouble come to us and we're supposed to be his people? And since the angel told Gideon, God's going to use you to deliver Israel, his third question was, how can this be? I'm from a small family. We're not wealthy. And plenty of people think like that. They say, well, look, I'm the least of all families in our community or in our county. I don't have any money. I don't have any status. I don't have any standing. I don't have any education. I don't have this. I don't have that. How can God use me to do anything? Well, you're a candidate just because God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. And whenever God asks you to do something, he's not asking you to do anything because of what you have in your pocket. He's asking you to do things because of what he can foresee you accomplishing if you would only believe in what he's asking you to do. There are plenty of people that never thought they would be a good this or good that, but the moment they began to follow the, the leading of God in their life, they found out they were much better than they ever thought they could have been. Yeah. And this is what happened with Gideon. Gideon, he... He had to step out in faith, and one of the first things he had to do was he was told by God, your dad is a pagan, and your dad worships other gods. So I want you to go to his altar of Baal, tear it apart, and where he has the grove of trees that they use for worship, you take an axe and cut down every tree. But Gideon, somewhat fearful, he went about midnight, and he went and he demolished the altar, erected another altar, sacrificed unto God, took an axe and cut down all the trees that his daddy and other people used for worshiping other gods. And the next morning when they got up, they said, who did this? And they said, we believe Gideon did this. Who would have ever thought that a man that didn't believe in himself and didn't believe that God could help him and wondered where God was, that he would have strength enough to stand up to his father? Faith can cause you to accomplish a lot of things. 
you just trust God. You, you can do things you've never done before if you're willing to step out and see what God can do through you and with you and for you and in you. So in verse 32, you have one figure after another here. Gideon ended up putting out fleeces because he didn't completely trust God. Notice in that book you have a man by the name of Samson. Well, if you've ever read his story, Samson was a man whose life was controlled by his appetites, his lust. He always wanted what was forbidden. He never wanted what was allowed. In his adult years, every chapter that begins with him in the book of Judges begins with him chasing a woman. He went to his mom and dad one time and said, look, I just spied out this beautiful girl. I'm telling you, she's got a great figure, beautiful face, and I want her for my wife. And his parents looked at him and said, can you not ever find somebody amongst the covenant people of Israel. He was always in love with people that didn't love God. And there are some people like that. They always fall in love with the wrong people. Their, their, their emotions, their, their emotional attachments, their attractions are always to people that don't love God. And they think it's okay. It's not okay. Because if you have a covenant with God, you should fall in love with people that have a covenant with God. And this is what, this is what, happened in the book of Judges. Samson was on his own road, and because of that, he ended up deceived by Delilah. He went into bondage and captivity. He lost his eyesight, and in his death, he was still praying for vengeance against all of his adversaries. Yeah. Think of Jephthah in the book of Judges, verse 32. You say, who was Jephthah? The Bible says Jephthah was a mighty warrior, but Jephthah was the son of a whore, a harlot. And because he was the son of a harlot, his siblings chased him out of the house and said, you will never be an heir with all of us that come from a good mama. We don't want your... He was the outside child of a relationship. They didn't want him around. They said to him... Never. So they chased him off. He had to go into another district to live. But when the children of Israel were taken captive, they remembered that Jephthah was a mighty warrior, that he wasn't afraid of anybody, and they pleaded with him to come back and fight for them, and he did. He delivered them. So even people who are raised in the worst circumstances, God can still use terrible circumstances. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever met people who, whose parents were involved with harlotry and all kinds of whoredoms and things like that. But growing up on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio, I knew a whole lot of moms and dads that sold themselves into sin. Back in the 80s, I, I knew of ladies that had babies and, and to, to afford their crack habits. They give themselves to anybody throughout the week. I've seen kids that were sold to other adults just because of their parents' habits. Yeah. And you wonder, how can anybody grow up in a household like that and become anything? Well, if, if somebody finds God, they can do great things. Yeah. You, you can have a kid grow up in a home where there's sexual abuse and alcoholism and other things like that. And if that kid can get, get their hands on God, God can get his hands on them, then God can preserve them even in the worst circumstances so that when they step out of that house and start taking steps of faith, they may have no money, they may not have anybody to help and support them, but the Scripture says when your mother and father forsake you, then the Lord will take you up. And there are plenty of people who have had to step out on their own to make it. They didn't have some of the resources that some of us in here had. You might have had a mom and dad to buy you a car because you were a good kid in high school. You might have had an opportunity to go off to school and mom and dad could put you in an apartment and pay for your apartment or something like that. But there are plenty of people that came up with zero 
and had parents that had nothing, and the community despised their mom and dad and their family, and yet God was able to do something great. I wonder how many of the small towns out here in Nebraska have an area of the community that is kind of like the south end of Red Cloud. Maybe the reputation wasn't always the best. But you know, it doesn't matter where you come from or where you're raised. If you walk with God, God can raise you up. And you are never limited by what other people think about you, but you are limited by what you believe about the promises of God in your life. And, and you can live a joyful, happy, peaceful, confident life in God if you choose to, or you can take the time to allow other people's thoughts about you to determine who you are. Don't do that. This is what Gideon's problem was. He was afraid to step out and do what God wanted because he kept reminding himself of his family. So what? So what you don't come from a family with a big name? Who cares? Most communities out here in rural America, from Iowa to, to Kansas and Nebraska, most of these towns think that there are basically three to five families that feel privileged and think they can run everything and feel like they ought to have access to everything. But I'm telling you, God's bigger than every family with a popular name. doesn't matter who has been in control of something. If you trust God, God can turn everything upside down and take the one who's the tail and make him the head. Trusting God. So you see this in verse 32. Samuel loved God, David loved God, but David was a man that committed adultery, murdered the man of the adulterous lady that he was with. He numbered Israel, ended up in trouble. Samuel had kids that didn't serve God, but yet Samuel walked with God and his children were wicked. And they were so wicked that they came to Samuel and said, we don't want your sons reigning over us. We'd rather have a king. We don't want you. Well, I could tell you more about all the different prophets, but I want you to look at verse 33. Of all the people mentioned in verse 32, notice verse 33, it says, who through faith subdued kingdoms. Now what I want to emphasize about this is that in Hebrews chapter 11, despite all the failures and flaws I just mentioned to you, that's not what the author of Hebrews is mentioning. He's not referring to any of their weaknesses that I just referred to. He's talking about their faith in God. So that tells me that, that imperfect people can yet have faith in God and still do great things even though they've failed God before. And the Bible is full of stories of people who have not done everything right, but yet because they had faith in God, they could still do wonderful things. There's not a one of us in here that's perfect. We have to always be careful about pointing the finger at somebody saying, you're not this or you're that and that kind of a thing, because you know how it is. You point one finger at somebody else, you've got three more pointing back at you. But with God... You can have faith in him, and that faith should affect how we live. But because of faith, if you look at verses 33, coming all the way down through 38, there are more than 25 activities that are mentioned that faith could bring about in a person's life. More than 25. And I think all of them are exceptional. But I want to focus on something in verse 35 now, because if, if, if I were to take each one of these sentences from 33 coming all the way down, I could preach a message on each one of them with an episode from the Bible. You, you say, well, how, how did faith subdue a kingdom? Joshua did that when the walls collapsed, remember? Think of all the people Moses conquered wrought righteousness. You find that with Jehoshaphat, Joash. They discovered the Bible, and they promoted Scripture and put out paganism and wrought righteousness in the kingdom, obtained the promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who stopped the mouths of lions? David beat up on a lion. 
Samson defeated a lion. Multitudes of them obtained the promises. Who quenched the violence of fire? Three Hebrew boys. Yeah. In the midst of a fire. And God preserved them and kept them. Who escaped out of the edge of the sword? Didn't Peter? Yeah. Yeah, Peter made it out. And other people out of the Old Testament. So I could show you an episode from the Bible that would go with every one of these sentences. But in verse 35, it tells us about women who received their dead raised to life again. It happened during the time of Elijah. It happened during the time of Elisha. His sons died. And the man of God went into the room with them, and by the power of God they were raised up. But then there's a little phrase in verse 35 in the next sentence. It says, and others, and and is a conjunction. And in the Greek, that conjunction is but. So this tells us now the conversation is about to go in the opposite direction in a totally different direction because up until this point, we've read about stories of deliverances and how faith had brought wonderful miracles to people. But for the rest of the chapter, you're reading about people that had faith in God and they had nothing but struggles. Look at it. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Verse 36, trial of cruel mocking, scourgings, bonds, and imprisonments. Verse 37, they were stoned. Notice the difficulties. Now, I've, I've heard people in underground churches and persecuted churches around the world read these verses, but in all my years of being a minister, I've never heard a teacher of so-called faith ever take the time to read these verses and explain them. Never. When I, when I think of all the series on faith that I have from different evangelists and different teachers who are supposed to be so good at teaching faith, I don't think I've ever heard anybody start with verse 35 and come all the way down to verse 38, and I think there's several reasons for that. Number one, these stories don't fit into their framework of faith. People dying? People tortured? Somebody saying they have faith in God and having trouble wandering about in goat skins, and it says in verse 37, destitute, that's poor. I mean, after all, you hear people say all the time, if you're poor, you haven't experienced the blessings of God because poverty is a terrible thing, and, and God would never, ever sanction that. But you know, there's a, a verse in James that said, Have not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? That the bulk of this world is inhabited by people that do not own what you own. Yeah. So one reason I know a lot of teachers of faith don't like these verses is because it doesn't fit their framework of faith. Secondly, they believe it's discouraging. They don't want to read these verses because, I mean, you have people slain with the sword, wandering in deserts and in caves and in dens of the earth. Who wants to hear stories like that? But you know, if you were a subscriber to the Voice of the Martyrs magazine and you read about people every day around this earth that die because they love Jesus, then you realize that just like Paul told Timothy, plenty of people are being faithful right up to the point of death. Right up till they draw their last breath. Yeah. I mean, not too terribly long ago, like 45 days ago, in northern India, 150 Christians were murdered. Two women were stripped naked and forced to walk down through the town with everybody watching. One of the ladies was beaten to death. The other was raped until she died. Nobody in the community stopped it. Nobody. In June of this year, in Uganda, there was a school of 60 little boys. Forty of them were hacked to death with a machete because the Muslims did not like the fact these folks love 
Christ. I know there are a whole lot of people don't like stories like this, and they say, oh, I, I don't want to hear stories like this. Well, the people living, they don't want to live the stories like this. And this is why Paul says, remember those that are in prison. Remember those that are in bonds. Because faith isn't about just sitting in a sanctuary with a carpet or sitting in a beautiful place that has wonderful stained glass windows or air conditioning. There are plenty of people meeting in rice fields and in jungles and in caves that, that love God without a car. Some of the best Christians I've met don't even own a car. They have a bicycle. Some of them don't even have that. So the second reason, as I said, people don't teach this because they think it's discouraging. The third reason I think people won't teach on it, and, and although they won't express it this way publicly, but they believe it in their heart, they don't believe these people who live this way exhibit genuine faith. Because if you have genuine faith, God's going to deliver you every time. But when you look at the Bible, you see that's not always the case. I know there's a verse in the scripture that says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, and the Lord shall deliver them out of them all. And greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And thanks be to God that causes us to triumph in all things. And if God be for you, who can be against you? I called on the Lord, and before I called, he answered. All of that is in there, but also these verses are in there too to preach the balance of it. That sometimes when you have faith in God... It's going to produce trouble. Notice what it says in verse 35 again. Others were tortured. That means they were put through a lot of pain. Acts chapter 22 verse 25 tells us the Apostle Paul had thongs placed upon his wrists. By thong. I'm not talking about female attire. I'm talking about ancient stuff where you had leather straps with metal balls at the end that when you twisted them and you placed them on a person's arms and wrists, it was like having modern-day handcuffs that were severely tight on you. This man was tortured. Don't ever forget that. There are plenty of people that have been tortured. I'm thinking of when ISIS took over three-quarters of Iraq and a good portion of Syria. Look at all of them people that really loved Jesus that were Christians and were crucified out in the town square. Do you even remember when the ISIS people took the 20 Egyptians and the Ghanaian man to the shores of, of Libya uh, where the water was there on the Mediterranean and had all of them down on their knees and asked every one of them Egyptian Christians, do you love Jesus? And they said yes, and with the camera rolling, cut their neck. And when they finally got to the man from Ghana, they said, what do you confess about your religion? He said, their God is my God. They cut his neck, and he died. Why do people do this? Because people have faith in God, and they don't like their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 35 says, others were tortured. Some could have accepted deliverance, but they rejected it. How did they reject it? They refused to renounce their faith. They said, absolutely not. I'm not giving up the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm serving him that I can obtain a better resurrection. What does that mean? In the book of Revelation, it said, blessed is he who's not a part of the second death. The first resurrection is when the trumpet sounds, and we're all raised up. That is the resurrection we want to be part of, a better resurrection, not the second death. Those that are raised up in order to be cast into hell and into the lake of fire. And the Muslims in the Middle East, they very often tell people, you don't have to die. We'll give you three options. One, convert to Islam. Two, you can immigrate to another country. Three, you can die. But there are a whole lot of Christians that are chosen to walk with God no matter what. Yeah. Notice the next one here in verse 36. Others had trial of cruel mockings. I told you about Samson. In Judges 16, verse 25, they brought him out in front of all the people and made sport of him. They mocked him. You know they did the same thing to Jesus. Second Chronicles 36, verse 16 says that of the prophets that came to Israel to tell them, turn from your sins, leave your iniquity. It says the children of Israel mocked the messengers of God. You watch te television today, people don't have a problem mocking Christians. 
Some of these people are foolish enough to call Christians the Taliban. They'll mock our faith in God, mock our relationship with the king, and they don't think there's anything wrong with it. Some of them do it, and they're serious about it, and they're wanting somebody to say anything to them about what they're doing. They mock their family members. Sometimes people get on fire for God, and a mom and a dad will mock their child or mock their grandchild. What's wrong with these people that they want to love Jesus Christ? Well, they love the Lord, you know. That's what faith is all about. Faith means you're going to be persistent. You're going to walk with God despite what has taken place. The end of verse 36 speaks of bonds and imprisonments. Joseph went to jail because of his faith in Genesis 39. Jeremiah, he went to jail in chapter 37 because he prophesied to the children of Israel that they were going into bondage and the Babylonians were coming. I visited people in jail before. We had a Filipino couple in the underground church over 30, 30 years ago in Saudi Arabia. The one young man was a butler working for an Arab family. The young lady was a maid working for another family. So I used the word butler and maid, but essentially they were slaves. That's basically what they were in Saudi Arabia. And I would see them at the Filipino church services that I would go to late at night sometimes. These two had a Christian ceremony, got married, even though they were living in separate homes. And where they were living, the Arab families had beautiful homes. They were very wealthy people, millionaires, but they kept them in a little small closet that wasn't more than maybe five feet by six feet, and that's where they had to do all their sleeping. They couldn't sleep for maybe six or seven hours a night if they had that because they were at the beck and call of the master and mistress, and they didn't make a whole lot of money. As soon as you check into the country, your, your employers take your passport, so it's not like you can leave and come whenever you want to. Well, their bosses found out that they got married and they had them put in jail because in Saudi Arabia, Christianity is banned. It's illegal. And they don't recognize any kind of Christian ceremony from any preacher or anybody. So this young man, I found out what little jail or prison he was in. I worked for the American Embassy. I had a diplomatic passport, so I could pretty much come and go where I wanted to go. I shouldn't have been there, and had the council had known I was going there, I'm sure they would have told me not to go. But I never told them where I was going. I wanted to see a fellow believer. I get there. He's got a cell that probably is no higher than this. He certainly couldn't stand up in it. He could only sit down in it. There's a window going to the outside. You've got mice all around in there. It's cold and damp in there. But yet I had a conversation with him. You would have thought he would have been angry, depressed, and then had a smile on his face. He loves Jesus. I think right now, between China, North Korea, and maybe a few Muslim countries around the world, there are probably more Christians in jail or in work camps than there are Christians in America that are free to worship the king. Yeah. The Bible says, remember those that are in bonds and in prison. Why are they in prison? Because they do not want people to love Jesus. You say, well, Pastor Darrell can't really be that bad. I'm telling you, that's exactly how, how bad it is. It's terrible. When Harry Jackson was here years ago, he told me the story of him preaching in Rwanda. You remember that terrible genocide? Thousands of people died. They made a movie about it. He said the movie didn't even do justice to what all went on there. And even now, you still have thousands of people that are without arms and legs and ears and nose and noses and all of that. But he told me one story about they took him to a church at night, and they said it was an abandoned church. It had been condemned and everything had been burned up and everything. So he said he got there. They had... Uh, flashlights or candles or something. He said he got in and they were walking and, and, and going inside and, and they had murals and stuff on the wall and pictures. And he said the stones and stuff were crunching up under his feet as he was walking. And he said finally when he flashed the, the light down on the, on the ground, he realized he wasn't walking on rocks. He's standing on bones. Because the Christian we're under the impression that when 
all these other people came against them that if they went into the church, they'd have protection in the church, but the church building didn't provide any protection, so the people just came right in with machetes and hacked them all to death in the church building. Others had trial of mockings and scourgings, moreover bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned. Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7. 1 Kings chapter 21, Naboth, you remember him, who refused to sell his property to Ahab and Jezebel. Naboth and his sons were paraded in front of all of these people. Lying witnesses got up and told tales that weren't true. And the scripture says, Jezebel and Ahab gave the verdict, stoned them to death, and they did. Stonies are still carried out today. You don't hear about it. I've told you before, I'm probably the only preacher you've ever met that's ever seen one in Saudi Arabia. But in rural Pakistan, rural Afghanistan, rural Iran, and Baluchistan, you still have stonings that take place monthly. Yeah. Nobody's going to mention that at all. Saudi Arabia still practice it, as well as other countries around the Arabian continent. But, but I'm telling you that Jesus says through Paul in Hebrews chapter 11, these people had faith. They didn't walk away from God just because somebody said, I'm going to take your life. Go back to the first century of the church with the Roman Empire, second, third century of the church with the Roman Empire. Multitudes of Christians were murdered. Communists throughout the 17th and 18th century murdered thousands of Christians. Sixteen months I lived in Turkey. I was there from 92 to 93. The great Armenian genocide of 1923, that means that I met people in the church in Turkey who are Armenian, some of them in their 80s and 90s, who lived through what happened in 1923. I had one lady that worked with me in the Istanbul consulate whose grandparents died in that genocide. And yet today, the Turks don't acknowledge that. 120 years ago, one out of, one out of every three Turkish people were Christian. You understand that? One out of every three. But they murdered so many of them, not even 2% of the population today is Christian. Why were they attacking so many of these Armenians and Greek Orthodox people because they were Christian and believed that Jesus was the Son of God. That's why. We're talking about faith. People that trust God and believe. Verse 37 talks about those that were sawn asunder. Historically, Isaiah was sawn asunder. People slain with the sword. James in Acts chapter 12 was killed with the sword. They arrested Peter in order to kill him the same way, but the angel of the Lord delivered him. They wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute. Of course they were destitute. If you're wandering, you can't keep a job. You're on the run. More than 10 years ago, I preached in Ankara, Turkey. I had Tiffany with me. We went to a region called Cappadocia. That's where the letter to the Galatians was written. And in that region, we went to an underground city. Now, if you, when you pull into that area, all you see are hills and mountains. That's all you see. But then you take a long trail walking up through there, and you get up to the side of one of the mountains, and then there's a big circular rock that's there. They push that thing back. See, somebody from the inside has to push that back, and it was already rolled back so we could go in. And we walked in, and I'm telling you, in all of those hills, you had thousands of rooms where Christians hid so the Roman soldiers couldn't get to them and kill them. And every time we walked through one of them rooms, I'm thinking to myself, how many babies went from infancy to their teenage years down here in the darkness with nothing but candles and lamps? And the only people that ever made it out to enjoy the sunlight like we're having right now would have been the secret messengers running out to try to get goods, to try to get back in and hope they don't get killed. You could see the bedrooms where people slept, the chapels that they made, hundreds of rooms in these hills and in these mountains, and you could go downstairs, down into the heart of the earth, or you could go upstairs into these mountains. 
Bible says these folks wandered, wandered, sheepskins, goatskins. Why were they wearing them? They had to wear whatever they could get their hands on, whatever they butchered. They didn't get rid of anything. They ate everything. They saved everything, made use of everything. And the scripture tells us in verse 39, all of these having obtained a good report through faith. I'm telling you, these are verses I have not heard teachers of faith expound on, primarily because most of them, when they go overseas, they're in a five-star hotel, and they don't take the time to go out of a big city to be around anybody that's experiencing this right here. But when I preached in Indonesia years ago, had a church of about 3,000 people, young people everywhere, get to the end of the service, had a beautiful altar call, and then standing in one of the back rooms, I had a young man came and was talking to me, was smiling and happy. And I said, well, where are you from? He told me. man rode a bicycle 45 miles to come here in American preach to him and encourage him, and he told me the reason he came was because the church building that he had, the Muslims had blown it to pieces, and he said he just wanted to go somewhere where he could be encouraged in God. I'm telling you, that's a man has faith. That's a man trusts God. And when people leave this life still confessing Jesus as their Savior, when people are pointing a spear at them and telling them to renounce Christ, I'm telling them folks have faith. They got a whole lot more faith than some of these people driving these Rolls Royces and wearing silk underwear. Talking about people that really love God. Yeah. How do we fight the good fight of faith? Hold on to what you believe. Stay strong in what you believe. And the last thing I'll tell you, the reason this is important for us is, is you know as well as I do, our culture has been shifting. It's been changing, not for the better, but for the worse. And for you that are over the age of 70, having faith in God at that time when you were a kid is not the same as having faith in God right now. There was a time people would ask you when you were a kid what you learned in Sunday school, what happened in church. They might let you read a Bible story in the classroom or something like that, but that, that kind of stuff isn't going to go on today. You talk about God in, in some schools, you're going to have a problem. And you look at what's going on in our public forum today, you're seeing a change in how we understand the Bible. You're seeing a change in how people engage one another when it comes to Scripture because the culture is opposed to Jesus Christ. They don't believe in the inspiration of the Word of God. And so there's going to be a time where someone's going to read Leviticus 18 or some chapter in the Bible and be kicked off of television in America just like they're being kicked off of television in Canada. All of this because of the iniquity of an antichrist spirit that is opposed to the truth of the Word of God. And with what I believe and with what I preach, in the midst of a nation that is so liberal and ungodly, I can tell you there are a whole lot of people that would be glad to listen to what I put on that radio and then bring a lawsuit against this church or radio station or somebody. Now, you don't know this, and I probably won't put this on the on radio, but probably for the last 15 years, you know, because they know how conservative I am with the preaching and stuff. Well, they all enjoy what we put on that radio up there, but for the last 15 years, every year I get a letter from KRVN. They want the names of everybody in this church that's a leader and their address. Because they want that if, if something happens and there's a lawsuit because I'm on there saying that, that homosexuality is a sin as the Bible teaches and stuff like that, they want to be able to bring any kind of lawsuit they can against anybody they want to. But, folks, I'm telling you, we're living in a time today. We're going to find out whether or not we really believe this stuff. These school boards and governors and mayors, we're going to find out whether or not we really believe this or if this is just something we say on a Sunday. Because you've got to live this all week long. And when people are pushing you back, saying, well, you shouldn't talk about religion. Why not? You get to talk about climate change all the time. You get to talk about inflation all the time. You get to hear all the lies about politicians all the time. Why can't I talk about my God? Why is it offensive to you that I tell you a man died on the cross 
for your sins, and he has made it possible for you to be free from guilt and shame. You don't want me to talk about that, but you do want me to read little cartoon books to five- and six-year-olds about how to perform oral sex on the same gender. And then not be offended at that, but be offended at the idea somebody wants to read a Bible. Folks, I'm telling you, these are the last days. And true faith, true faith is going to demand that we take a stand for what we believe. I'm not saying we got to go out here marching up and down the street with shotguns, but I am saying we've got to hold on to our Bible. And while all of this crazy stuff is going on, I'm going to just load my shotgun and pray. But I'm not going to be pushed back by anybody. I'm just going to trust God because if you have to come visit me at the county jail one day, I do want you to come, but I'm still going to be telling folks about Jesus no matter what anybody says. Let's stand. Let's stand. True faith is what we have to have in these last days. And I understand why the devil is so afraid of this book because if if, if you really... Think about it. This book has transformed the lives of communities and cities. This book changed my life, and I know it changed yours. Yeah. When you say you're going to stand on this, this world's going to be opposed to us. For every house church leader and persecuted person I've met, Sometimes I've laid in the bed overseas and just thought to myself, I, I don't even have any faith at all with the way these people are living, what they're having to endure, family members that are in jail. So the way I want to close this service out today, I want us to just, just for about four or five minutes, I'm going to ask a few of you just to pray. And I want us all to agree, uh, Don and, and Sue, come up here. We're, we're going to pray for some different parts of the world. She mentioned Haiti, the problems taking place down there in Central America. I want to pray for Christians that are standing strong in the Middle East. I'm going to ask Don to pray for believers in communist countries that are having troubles. But, folks, prayer does work. And who knows, it very well could be that as we're praying, that God could release an angel to send to somebody to bring deliverance to them, to help them. And, Barry, if you can play something in the background, that would be just as good. But, Sister Sue, lead us in prayer for Haiti and Central America at this time.